Turn together to Luke chapter 2. Might be able to tell my voice is a little bit weaker than usual right now, so you'll have to bear with me a bit. But we'll get through it. Luke 2, verses 1 through 20. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went out from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, for he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. There were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which is come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and found Mary, and Joseph, and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things, and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, as it was told unto them. We read thus far in Holy Scripture this morning. Call our attention, especially to verse 7 as our text. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Beloved congregation and our Lord Jesus Christ, the story of Jesus' birth told here in Luke chapter 2 belongs to the most important event in the history of the world, which is the coming of the Lord. In Galatians 4 verse 4 we read that it was not only the Virgin Mary who was pregnant, but time itself and all creation had become full as God sent His Son to be made of a woman, to be made under the law, to redeem those that are under the law. There's good reason for us to have a celebration, therefore, this time of year, to mark the coming of the Lord, the most significant event 
In history, everything ties back to what happened here in the little town of Bethlehem. But there's something about the way that Jesus came into the world that strikes quite a contrast with the way his birth is often celebrated. Jesus did not come into this world to the sound of music or to a pile of shiny presents under a Christmas tree. If God did not make a special point of drawing attention to the fact that his son was coming, the birth of this child would have been missed entirely. Who was looking out of the windows of the inn at Bethlehem to see this woman wrapping her child in swaddling clothes? Who was there to hear the cries and coos of a baby who was lying in the straw of a manger? He was born into humility. He was born to the relative indifference of the people around him who did not notice and did not care. Yet according to the angels who spoke to the shepherds, this, exactly this, was the sign to them. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And that tells us something about who this Messiah is who was sent into the world in the fullness of time. In contrast to the glory of another king who is mentioned earlier in the same passage that we just read, Caesar Augustus, who was born to earthly glory and earthly promise, the true Son of God, the Messiah, was born and wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger in the straw. And that's what I call our attention to this morning, the Messiah in the straw. First, we will see the fact of it, the historical account that is given here in Luke 2, verse 7. And then secondly, the reason for this. Why is the Messiah lying in the straw? Why, when God's Son is born, can He be found wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger? And then finally, we'll conclude with the glory of it. There's a glory here that can't be found anywhere else, but can only be found in Christ. The Messiah in the straw, the fact of it, the reason for it, finally the glory of it. The baby born from Mary was lying in the straw. His birth was like the birth of any other baby. There's an old idea that was prominent in the medieval church that says that Jesus was born in a special way. It would be too messy and common for the Son of God to come into the world through labor pains and through contractions and the way other children have been born. So it was said that Jesus must have passed mysteriously through Mary's belly, probably with a halo already on his head. You can compare it to the way that Jesus later would pass through the stone walls of the tomb when he was risen from the dead. And when you look at the old paintings of Mary and her child, it always looks that way. It always looks otherworldly. Everything is so clean and solemn, more like the inside of a church cathedral than the inside of a hospital where a child has just been born. And of course, it was in church cathedrals that those paintings and nativity scenes can be found. What we read in the text, though, is that Mary simply brought forth her firstborn son. 
You can imagine the intensity of the atmosphere as this first-time mother cries and labors in her contractions and in her travail to bring forth this child. And when at last, after her labor is finished, the child comes out of her womb, he would have opened his mouth and he would have begun to cry just like any other baby who was born. The line in Away in the Manger says, No crying he makes. And I appreciated the explanation for that that was given at the chapel speech on Friday. If you were there, the children were. That helped save that line for me a little bit. Speaking of the fact that Christ, when he was a child, did not have a complaining spirit. He did not cry in a complaining way. But technically, when it comes to the actual birth of Christ, that line is incorrect. The first sign of a healthy human baby is when that baby fills his air and lets out a cry. And that is a natural thing. That's part of coming into this world, part of the process. And when children need to be fed, they cry. And when they're cold, they cry. And that's not necessarily because of sin in them, that's because that's the way God designed it for human children to show that they need some care. When Jesus was born, he opened his mouth and he let out a cry, and that cry was heard. If you could picture the true nativity scene, it wouldn't be so sterile and otherworldly. The true nativity scene would have a Mary exhausted and a little child covered in wrinkles, covered in the messy effects of when a child is born for the first time. And Mary holding that child to her breast. When he was born and cleaned up and fed, then the mother needed a place to lay him down for the night. He was going to lie down somewhere, and therefore he would be cold, so he needed to be wrapped up in something. When a child comes from the warm darkness of his mother's womb out into the, the cold world, that child is, is cold and needs to be wrapped up. And so, swaddling clothes. Swaddling clothes simply means the basic sort of blanket or wrapping that any mother would have used in those days and still uses in our days to, to wrap a child up and to keep that child nice and tight and cozy and warm. Jesus was not wrapped up in a golden fleece. He was not wrapped up in, a, in swaddling bands that were made out of soft velvet like a prince or a noble men's son might have been. The swaddling bands were probably something that Mary had prepared beforehand knowing that the time of her birth was coming soon. But they were not dirty old rags as I used to imagine when I was a child. They were the sort of thing that any Jewish mother would have prepared for her newborn child. Not particularly rich or wealthy, but not, not dirty and filthy either. Just basic, common materials. So you can picture the baby neatly wrapped up in the fetal position, his face glowing with health, but probably not glowing with radiant beams. The place the mother found to lay him down in then, after wrapping him in swaddling clothes, was a manger. A manger is a feeding trough. 
for domesticated animals like donkeys and camels and oxen. It's a safe guess to say that there was probably straw in that manger already because that's what animals eat, straw. But if there wasn't some sort of straw or feed in that manger for the animals to eat already, surely there was some sort of bedding lying in the area and Joseph or a helper could have scooped up some of that bedding and laid it in the manger so that the child, though wrapped in swaddling clothes, would not be laid in a hard wooden surface, but in some bedding. And there he was, the newborn child, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger in the straw. And there he slept for the night. That Jesus was laid in a manger gives us a bit of a clue as to the overall environment into which Jesus was born then. For one thing, it's clear that Mary was not at her own home when she went into labor. That would have been the normal place to give birth to a child in your own town and in probably your own house. There were no nice clean hospitals at this time with doctors and nurses and a whole staff that could could ensure a clean and sterile delivery. A first-time mother would want to be in her own house because that's where she would get the most help from her sisters, perhaps, or from her mother or from the neighbors who lived in the area. At the very least, there might have been a midwife that lived in the town who knew Mary, who could have assisted her, but there in her hometown, she would have received help, the only kind of help that people really expected and used in those times. But Joseph and Mary were not home. They were out of their hometown, far away in the town of Bethlehem. The journey to Bethlehem was necessary because of the taxation decree issued by Caesar Augustus. At some time, Joseph would have to go to Bethlehem in order to file for a census and to pay his taxes. The fact that they decided to go precisely at this moment when Mary was nearly full term might have had something to do with the stigma of Mary being pregnant before her marriage had been consummated. And we've already seen what that stigma might have been as we've pursued this Advent series. There also seems to be some evidence from the Bible that suggests that Joseph and Mary might have intended to live in Bethlehem and even settle down in Bethlehem for a period of time. According to Matthew 2, verse 11, When the wise men came, they found Joseph and Mary living in a house, not in a manger or rather a stable anymore, but in in a house. And that this was sometime after Jesus had been born, possibly as long as two years after Jesus had been born, since that's the age of children that Herod decreed should be executed as he was trying to kill the Christ child. So perhaps... Mary and Joseph's intention was to settle down in Bethlehem. But they were away from home, away from family, away from help. Mary had her husband Joseph, maybe someone else who chipped in. But don't overlook that. She's in a vulnerable position. And there's a fear, a fear that naturally comes along with Going into labor, especially for the first time, and especially in those days when they didn't rely upon or have the ability to rely upon the kind of 
medical developments that we have. So they were away from home. But also this, that Jesus was laid in a manger adds to the overall picture that by suggesting that they were in some sort of barn. You never read of that in so many words. It just talks about a manger. But a manger, as we said, is a feeding trough for animals. So where a manger is, animals are. And where are animals kept? In a barn or in a stable. There are different possibilities suggested as to what sort of barn this was. It may have been a cave on the outskirts of Bethlehem where animals were tied up. That's one possibility that's often offered. It might have been a room in one of the houses of Bethlehem, a room that was designated for animals, which is another possibility that's sometimes suggested. The possibility that seems the most likely to me is that it was a place outside the inn itself. There were inns in those days, and of course, an inn, you know, like a hotel, was a place where people stayed, but they didn't have a parking lot for cars in those days. What they had was an animal pen because people traveled by use of animals, donkeys and camels and oxen to pull their wagons and so on. So they had an animal pen or a place that was called a caravansary, that is a place where the the caravan of animals could be hitched up and kept for the night and given a place to bed down and to be fed just outside the inn. And it was also common in those days that if the inn was sold out and there were no rooms left in the inn, that travelers would be allowed to sleep in the caravansary near the animals where there would be some bedding, some, some straw, It's not difficult to imagine that the inn of Bethlehem at this time would have many animals in its caravansary. There were officials from Jerusalem and from Rome who had come to make sure that the census was carried out properly and and the taxation that Caesar Augustus decreed was taking place. There were travelers from all over Judea who had come to this area to register their names and their ancestral town. All of these travelers would have come with animals who needed a place to sleep, and food to eat. So Bethlehem, though it's a small town on the outskirts of Jerusalem, would have been a fairly busy place at this time. A lot of people coming and going due to the taxation and the census. So there's a full inn, and there's a caravansary with many animals and bedding and a manger full of feed. And these are the smells and the noises that are taking place. Animal smells, animal noises, Well, added among those smells and noises now comes the labor and travail of Mary bringing forth her firstborn son and the cries of a little newborn child. That's the fact that the Scripture records as to how the Messiah was born. She brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger for there was no room for them in the inn. Now, what's the reason for this? Why was he laid in the straw? Well, the reason the text gives is that the Messiah was laid in the straw because there was no room for them in the inn. Wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. 
Now, we have to be careful not to read too much into that statement. On the one hand, we just took note of the fact that Bethlehem was an unusually busy place at this time. It's not surprising that the inn would be full and that there would be no rooms available for Joseph and Mary. The inn was probably booked up with Roman officials who had come to carry out the census and other important people who were handling the execution of Caesar's decree or people who were traveling from around the country in order to register their own names. It may well have been that Joseph and Mary were not the only people who were turned away, that they were not the only people for whom there was no room in the end. There could have been other travelers who were also sleeping in the caravansary along with them. Furthermore, Joseph and Mary were not well known in the city of Bethlehem. Though Joseph had historic roots in the city of Bethlehem, he was not from there. He lived in Nazareth, which was to the north. There's no way the people who ran the inn would have known Joseph and Mary. There's no way they would have known anything about the conversation that Mary had had with the angel Gabriel or what was going on in Mary's womb. There's no need for us to imagine that Joseph and Mary and the child in Mary's womb had been specifically singled out for cruel and malicious treatment by the innkeeper. Someone might read this story and say, well, I know what this story means for for me as a Christian today. Unlike that evil innkeeper who made no room in his inn or in his heart for the Messiah, I must make room for Jesus by accepting Him into my heart. Well, there's problems with that interpretation And among those problems is the fact that it assumes that the innkeeper knew who Joseph and Mary were in the first place or what was going on with the child in Mary's womb. They didn't know that. And there's no warrant for coming to a conclusion like that from the text itself. To the innkeeper and the people of Bethlehem, Joseph and Mary were simply a young couple traveling in order to carry out their duty with regard to the census and the taxation. That being said, the text does draw attention to the fact that there was no room for them in the inn. And that ought to strike us as significant. There is significance in this. Even if you take all of these relevant factors into consideration, that the city Bethlehem was busy due to the census and taxation, and that there was still a place made for Mary and Joseph in the caravansary, and that they probably were not singled out for special evil treatment in light of the busyness of the time, and there may have been others who were also not given room in the inn. Even when you consider all of those relevant factors, you still have to consider this very relevant factor, which is that here we have a young and very pregnant woman with her husband who are seeking a place to sleep for the night. And Mary at this time was so far along in her pregnancy that she ended up giving birth that very night. Or at least not long after seeking a place at the inn, but probably that very night. This is a woman far from home, clearly in need of some help, at the very least in need of a clean room in a bed. 
showing up on the doorstep of this inn. I'm sure with distress and concern very clear on her face and on the face of her husband. And yet, not a single person staying in the inn gave up their room for her. That was an option. Let me sleep in the straw. Let me sleep in the caravansary. You, young woman, about to give birth to a baby, evidently in distress, needing some help, have my room. Have your baby over here. In fact, let me drop what I'm doing. I'll go find the midwife. I'll go find you some help and we'll make sure that this is as easy on you as possible and as easy on the child as is possible. At the very least, the innkeeper might have given up his own house to accommodate this young woman about to give birth to a child and evidently in distress. But he didn't. And neither did anybody else. Instead, they allowed her to have her baby in a barn surrounded by the stink of animals. They allowed her to take her little infant, wrap him in the swaddling clothes, and lay him in a box. A box out of which animals ate. With straw or something like it as his bedding. That speaks volumes. Regardless of who the child in Mary's womb actually was, it could have been any child. That fact speaks volumes. They let this woman give birth to her child in a barn. Nobody gave up their bed. Nobody gave up their room. They're indifferent. And notice the effect of the indifference to this young woman and her plight. The effect is that the Son of God is born right outside the windows and nobody even notices. Nobody even cares. The cost of indifference to the obvious need of this young woman who is about to give birth is that the Messiah comes into the world and he's completely missed. That's the significance of the fact that there was no room for them in the inn. It was not out of some overt attempt to exclude Christ and his mother as such. They didn't know that Christ was in Mary's womb. But it was really worse than that. They didn't know that Christ was there either to accept him or reject him, but they became blind to his presence due to their own indifference to God and His Word, due to their own indifference even to the basic commands of God and His Word, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. There's an application here for us about the cost of having an indifferent attitude to God and His Word and the things of His kingdom and to the duties of a Christian life to the duties of Christian love. Do you remember from Matthew 25 what Jesus will say to the sheep on His right hand before they enter into the kingdom? 
He will say, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. And then he'll say this, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to see me. And then the sheep will reply and they'll say, Lord, when did we do these things? We never came to you. We never saw you sick. We never saw you naked and then clothed you. And what's Jesus' answer? Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of these, the least of my brethren, ye have done it unto me. That's Matthew 25, verse 40. It's not that they did it to Jesus right there in the room. But they did it to his brothers. And inasmuch as they did it to them, they did it unto him. Because they were not indifferent to the plight of these, the least of his brothers, they were not indifferent to him either. In a literal sense, those who turned away from the pregnant Mary and turned her out of the inn at Bethlehem were turning away from Christ himself, even though they did not know that he was there. And that's how the goats also live their lives. Indifferent to the needs and the cries of the least of these they are. And Jesus will have a word one day with those who did not make room for his mother in the inn at Bethlehem. And he will have a word for all men who live in self-satisfied indifference to the least of these his brethren. And that word in Matthew 25 is this, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Why? For I was hungry, and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you didn't take me in. I was naked, you didn't clothe me. I was sick, I was in prison, you didn't visit me. So why was the Messiah laying in the straw at his birth? Reason number one because there was no room for them in the end. The hearts of men were blind and indifferent to God and His Word, the righteous living, and so they missed Him. They missed Him. Reason number two is that God ordained this because God wanted His Son to be laid in the straw, and He wanted this to be a sign of who that Son of His was and what He came to do. We know that God wanted this because the angels who later on appear to the shepherds give this as the sign to them of the Messiah's birth. Verse 12. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. That sign is not just an identifying mark to show that this is the right baby. You found the right baby. He's the one wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger, although that's true. But the sign means more than that. The sign points to who this child is. The sign points to his identity. The sign points to what he came to do. God is communicating something important to these shepherds and he's communicating something important to us by having it be so that his son, when he's born, is laid in the straw, in a manger. You have to keep in mind that everyone in those days was looking for the coming of the Messiah. Everybody wanted a Messiah to come. 
There was an expectation that the son of David was going to come. And when he comes, he's going to come charging through the gates of Jerusalem, riding a white stallion. When he comes, he's going to throw off the yoke of the Roman Empire. Nothing was more burdensome to the Jews than the thumb of Caesar that was on them, represented by this taxation that Caesar Augustus declared that affected even them. The Messiah is going to come. He's going to set us free from all of that. The Messiah is going to come, and he's going to make our pockets full of money again. He's going to make our nation great. He will show once and for all that Israel, Israel is the best people in the world, that Abraham's seed, they're the greatest. And because everybody was looking for a Messiah like that, nobody was looking for a Messiah in a box filled with straw outside the inn in Bethlehem. No one expected that the Messiah, when he came, would be kicked to the curb by the officials of Rome itself when they took over the inn of his home city, the city of David. That's why God made sure the Messiah would be laid in the straw when he was born. You're looking in all the wrong places. That's what God's saying. (coughs) The same blindness that leads you to ignore a helpless young woman about to give birth makes it impossible for you to see the Christ when he comes. You're looking up. You're looking for a blaze of glory to happen in the sky. But you must look down. You must look down to the most lowly and most unlikely of places. There you will find the Messiah. There you will find the salvation that God has prepared for Israel in the manger, in the straw. And don't stop there. Don't stop at the manger. Look even deeper. As theologians of the past have said, over the manger hangs the shadow of the cross. The Messiah who is born into humility, laid in the straw, will descend still lower and lower until his body is soaked in blood and his hands and feet are pierced with nails on the cross. All of that to take away guilt and shame and the power of sin and the lust of the flesh to destroy his people, including the sin of ignoring a helpless young woman outside the door, perhaps, or including the sin of having hearts full of earthly glory that keep us distracted from what the kingdom of God really is. Messiah comes in the straw. This will be the sign unto you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. When you understand this, it makes all of the cuteness of the modern nativity scene start to feel rather inappropriate. And when you understand this also, It makes the attempts to conceal the messy facts, the messy reality of Jesus' birth to be misleading. It was messy. There was something very ugly about it, something very humble about it. Among the stink of animals, straw, a box where donkeys put their faces to eat. That's where he was born. Don't be deceived by all the cutesiness of the season, beloved. Instead, take note of the depths of the love of God. The depths of the love of God who has not held back 
even his own son from the lowest, the deepest, the most profound of sufferings in order to lead us to repentance for our failures and sins and to work in us a true faith, a true faith in the true Messiah, the Messiah who comes to save his people from their sins. And it's when we have that faith, beloved, faith in the Messiah in the straw, in the Messiah who is going to the cross. When we have that faith, beloved, we can also see his glory, the glory of this. The glory, first of all, is a glory that is true glory, genuine glory. It's a glory that, again, stands in contrast to the kind of glory that is represented by a figure like Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus is a glorious figure. Caesar Augustus had such power, such a concentration of power, that he was able to make a single decree. And all the peoples that lived around the Mediterranean Sea, in the world as it was known at that time, had to move and go to different places in order to register their names and pay taxes to him to support his reign. What glory, what power he had. He was surely covered in golden rings and precious jewels, and his name has been remembered. And there are many monuments to Caesar Augustus still standing today. You can visit them and see them in museums. But what kind of glory is that glory represented by Caesar Augustus? It's fake. It's contrived. It's not genuine. It's a glory that has to be propped up by spending all kinds of money. It's a glory that has to be propped up by doing famous deeds. It's a glory that has to be propagandized by making elaborate stories and mythologies that stand behind the birth of Caesar Augustus. And he had his own, his own birth stories. But it's fake. It's not genuine. It's a glory that passes away. Caesar Augustus doesn't have that glory anymore. The glory of the Messiah of God, however, is completely different from that. And the fact that he was laid in the straw in a manger at his birth makes that abundantly evident. He does not need to wear a golden fleece at his birth. He does not need to do anything eye-catching for his name to be lifted up and remembered into the ages. His glory is a glory that is possessed by him because of who and what he is, the Son of God. His glory is such a glory that it will never go away and it will never pass away, even with the passing of the years and the passing of the seasons. It's a glory that is totally secure. He is God in our flesh, the Redeemer of his people. That's real glory, genuine glory, the glory of God, the glory that God himself has validated by lifting up his Son after he died, raising him from the dead, exalting him to the highest place of the heavens. It's a glory that will come full circle when he, the Messiah, the child who was once laid in the straw, will return once again with the host of heaven at his back to judge men like Caesar Augustus and all the world who opposed him. It's a genuine glory, a real glory. But there's also glory seen in this. 
God has this wonderful ability, doesn't He? To lift up and to make glorious something that in and of itself is worthless or mundane. Or appears worthless and mundane. Nothing glorious about a manger. Nothing glorious about some straw. Nothing glorious about it, that is, until you take this child, the Son of God, come into our flesh, wrapped in swaddling clothes, and you lay Him in that manger. And you lay Him in that bed of straw. That's what makes the whole scene glorious, isn't it? That which is common and otherwise unnoteworthy becomes sanctified and glorious due to its association with Him. And He does that with you too, beloved, who believe in Him. That which otherwise is lowly, that which otherwise is rejected on account of sin and failure, that which otherwise would be the object of God's wrath, to be cast into the fire and consumed in a moment, the Messiah reaches down and He redeems you from destruction and He lifts you up and He makes you holy and He gives you a glory that will never pass away because of your association with Him. That's the wonder of it, isn't it? The glory of the Messiah and the straw. And it's not only you and me that He sanctifies and ultimately glorifies. It's not only people, that is, humanity, or elect humanity, who is the object of God's redemptive love in Christ. Well, look at this Christ child. Where is he at his birth? Laid in a manger, laid in the straw. What's around him? The cattle are lowing. The baby awakes. Oxen, donkeys, camels, the creatures that God has created, the creation, the world itself, this cursed, broken, fallen world, which is under the veil of death, which is under the veil of vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Nevertheless, God says it's good. God says, I love that world, and He sends His Son into that world. And by His Son going into that world, what happens to that world? Well, He redeems it. Beasts, birds, Trees and people to live in the midst of it all. That's glory, beloved. True glory. Nothing is too lowly for the reach of God's grace. That's the gospel to us this morning. Let us hear that and receive that and believe, beloved, in the Messiah who was once laid in the straw. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank Thee for this truth that Thy Son was born and born in lowliness, born in such a way that He was laying there in the straw. And that was a sign to the shepherds and to others of that generation. And it's a sign to us too of who He is, what His glory is, how His glory contrasts with the empty and vain glory of men. It is an eternal glory, a true glory. And how He is able to sanctify 
that which otherwise is set for destruction. We pray, O Father, that Thou wilt make the wonder of Christ's birth known to us. Let it resonate in our hearts that we may not be indifferent to the least of these His brothers, but that we may have hearts full of empathy and sympathy for our neighbor to reach out in love the way that Thou hast reached out toward us. We pray, O Father, give us a good rest on this Sabbath day. Send us away from Thy house this morning with Thy blessing and bring us here again tonight to hear Thy word and to worship Thee. Hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.